0: This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read God's Word this morning as it is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Hear the Word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby... If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ." Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they behold, or shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation." Submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the King. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully... What glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were he called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that he should follow his steps, who did no sin neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12. On the basis of what we read in 1 Peter 2, and on the basis of all of Holy Scripture, we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, on Lord's Day 12, we considered last Sunday the first question to answer regarding the name Christ that is anointed. And today we consider the second question to answer, Why art thou called a Christian? Answer, Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of His anointing and that so I may confess His name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, begin with a question this morning a question which you must learn to answer correctly. The question is this, men, women, children, members of the church, are you an office bearer in the church of Jesus Christ? Do you hold an important office in Christ's church? Many are tempted to answer with a quick no. No. I'm not an elder, not a deacon, not a minister, maybe never will be. But if you look at the theme of this sermon on the basis of Scripture and the catechism, that theme gives you the correct answer. The theme is the office of Christian. And so you know the right answer, and you must learn that answer and remember that answer through the sermon and through your life. You do have an office, an important office in the Church of Jesus Christ, and that is the office of a Christian. Yes, your answer should be. Do you hold office? Yes. No matter who you are, if you are a believer, if you are a member of the Church, whether male or female, old or young, every believer holds the office of believer, it's called, or the priesthood of all believers, or as the Catechism puts it, the office of a Christian, is of course necessary to distinguish between the special office in the church of Jesus Christ and this important office of Christian. In the church we refer to ministers and elders and deacons, and those are special offices. Offices which Christ does not choose to give to every member. Christ chooses these office bearers through the prayerful voting of the members in their office of Christian. Not everyone gets to hold these special offices according to the providence of God. And sometimes that's unexplainable to some of us. But all believers must know and cherish even, value this office of believer. First Peter puts it this way in verse 9. This is the office that you have as a Christian. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that He should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Peter is saying in that verse, you hold an office. Before we consider that office, I bring up for you some history The history shows to us the threat, the danger that we can always fall into, a denial or a false, a misunderstanding of this doctrine of the office of Christian, of the office of every believer. Back in the times of the Roman Catholic Church, as many of you know, there was a falling into wrong understanding, even an omitting of the office of believer. This truth was rejected so that, for example, the Roman Catholic Church denied access into the presence of God, especially access into the presence of God for the forgiveness of sins. They denied that to the ordinary believer, as they called them the laity, so that in order to approach God, in order to be assured of forgiveness and to confess their sins, the people had to go through a priest in the confessional. And then the priest would prescribe some order of penance. And then only when they fulfilled that penance, then they could come and receive what they called absolution. Access into the presence of God was denied the priesthood of every believer. And the the Reformers came, the Reformation took place, and they restored unto each believer this special office of priest. And they told every believer on the basis of God's Word that you are a priesthood and you of yourself in Jesus Christ, the only mediator, mediator, may come and enter into the presence of God. You have access there and you may confess your sins yourselves and know with certainty the forgiveness because of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church also taught that the Pope and the other clergy of the church were the only ones who could actually understand and interpret Scripture. And the laity, the normal believer, couldn't do that of themselves or by themselves. Denying the office of believer, the Roman Catholic Church even withheld the Scriptures from the people, left it in a foreign language, because the people couldn't understand it anyway, they said. And then they took a hold of that and taught the people however they wanted, not on the basis of Scripture. The Reformation took place and they restored to the church the office of believer. They preached on the basis of Scripture that you can understand the Word. And the first thing that the Reformers did was to translate the Scriptures into the language of the people because they are prophets. You can understand and even speak the truth of the Word, contrary to the clergy of the church. The Roman Catholic Church was also guilty of hierarchy, that in church government, the church viewed the people as lesser. And when the Pope, especially when he sat on his throne, along with the assemblies of the Roman Catholic Church, made official decisions, those those decisions were declared as infallible. The people were told they were not to question the word of Christ, and they lost their voice. The Reformation took place and restored to the believer his office, her office, to get rid of the hierarchy in the church and gave to the believer the right to discern whether the decisions of the Pope and the assemblies were according to Scripture and to protest and speak up to use the voice of prophet and king and declare even when the church had made a wrong decision. God used the Reformation to restore the office of every believer. Importantly, of course, part of the history is that the Reformers had to fight against radicals and extremists as well. They too attacked the proper understanding of the office of every believer. And they went to an extreme to take and use and twist the doctrine of the office of all believer in order to excuse their rebellion and to excuse the disorder they created in the church. And the Reformers had to battle against those radicals as well to uphold the special office of minister, elder, and deacon. And at the same time, while upholding the authority in those offices, to maintain the office of every believer in the church. And here in that history, beloved, you know how badly we at the church today also need clarity on this truth of the office of every believer. You know anything about what has taken place in the controversy, you know there can be, there has been a wrong understanding. Last Sunday we began a consideration of Lord's Day 12 on the official name or title of Christ. Christ has this title, which means the anointed one. But His anointing, His anointing is given to us as well. The catechism takes us on a slight tangent this morning to consider the name Christian related to the name Christ. Christ gives us His name and His anointing. Consider with me this truth under the theme, the office of Christian. First, the office. Second, the work. And then finally, the blessing. The office, the work, and the blessing. In this first point, we consider or begin with the name Christian and then what the name points to, the office. The name Christian was a name of reproach in the early church. It was used to demean Christians early on. There are three places that the Bible uses the word Christian or the name Christian. First in Acts 11.26, we read in Acts 11.26, at the end of that verse, this, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And it's possible that that verse be interpreted that the members of the church called themselves Christians, and that took place first in Antioch, but more probably It was that the unbelievers, others around the church of Antioch, not part of the church, but around the church of Antioch, called the members of the church Christians. They gave them a label, a little sect of Christians. They demeaned those people with the name. In Acts 26, we find a second time that the word Christian is used. 26, verse 28. and There we find Paul, the Apostle Paul, standing before wicked King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. You remember that history. Paul had been taken as a prisoner, and he was standing before Agrippa, but he knew he had appealed to Caesar and would soon go to Rome, to Caesar. As he stood before King Agrippa, he did not mainly focus upon his own innocence, but he testified the, of the innocence of Jesus Christ and preached a gospel unashamedly to King Agrippa. That was his witness And then he asked Agrippa toward the end, Do you believe? I know you believe, Agrippa. Do you believe? And Agrippa responded, Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Literally, more literally. In a little while, or in such a short while, thou persuadest me to become a Christian? And there are different interpretations of the attitude of Agrippa there, but when he used that word Christian, he was not using it in a positive sense. He saw it as unthinkable that he would so quickly, in hearing Paul, take on the unpopular name Christian. He would lose his reputation. The second time that the word or a third time that the word Christian is used is in 1 Peter 4.16, just a couple of chapters from our scripture reading. And that third third time we we see the word Christian in the Bible is 1 Peter 4.16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this behalf. And there you see the name Christian is also or was used as a name of reproach. For you would suffer the shame of being a Christian. It was a name despised. It was a name mocked, children. It was a name taken upon the lips with a snarl of hatred or a smirk of derision. Now today, in America especially, the name Christian has become more popular, more accepted, even boasted about. Many are nominally Christian. But you can be sure of it that if you take on the name Christian not only, but you begin living as a Christian in the midst of this world of nominal Christians. More and more, you will be hated, and the name Christian will be hated in America also, as is happening. In His providence, God governed even wicked men to label the church as Christian's. But use that to give to us a name that is a beautiful name. A name with a beautiful meaning. The name means simply of Christ. Of Christ. Or as the catechism puts it, member of Christ. Why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ. And to be a member of Christ means to be joined to Christ, to be connected to Christ, to be in a relationship to Jesus Christ, that your person is joined to his person in a bond of faith, as the Catechism says. I'm a member of Christ by faith. And if you're thinking with me, you immediately go back to Lord's Day seven. You immediately go back to the illustration, don't you, of Christ being the vine and you being the branches and how you as a branch are joined or engrafted into Christ the vine by faith, that bond of faith. You're of Christ. You're a Christian by faith. But the biblical illustration that the catechism brings up to us in this Question and answer is not that of the vine and the branches, but of a different biblical illustration. Member of Christ, we read by faith. The word member means, children, body part. Body part. And so all the people of God are different parts of the body, like a human body. And Christ joins us to Himself. Christ is the head of the body. We're the members of the body parts of His body, joined, intimately connected, united to Him. We're a Christian because we are part of the body of Christ. This faith that joins us to be part or a member of the body of Christ is a gift as we know in Reformed theology, You didn't establish the bond of faith between yourself and Jesus Christ. It was God who established this bond of faith. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18 puts it beautifully. But now hath God set the members or the body parts, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased Him. It's beautiful. He's taken us who as a body part would be used by Satan to do whatever He wanted us to do members of His kingdom and His body, and joined us to Christ. And now we become His body parts to do His work. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Then you are a Christian not because of your work, of your doing, of joining yourself to Him, but because He has taken you and made you a willing member of His body. The name Christian means literally member of Christ, joined to Him by the bond of faith. And those who find themselves joined to Jesus Christ by faith will find not only that they know their salvation, but they also find that they know that they have an office. The office of every believer. The office of a Christian. To refresh your memories, the word office refers to the honorable position an honorable position that someone has. That's an office. A position which includes privileges and duties. Privileges and duties. If you are joined to Jesus Christ, you're not only forgiven of your sins and you have the hope of heaven and you have salvation, but part of your salvation is that you now occupy a place, a position in the church of Jesus Christ with privileges and duties. Though you might think of that special office of elder, minister, and deacon in the church, I say to you this morning, if you are a Christian, then you have an office of even greater importance than minister, elder, and deacon. You have an office of even more value than the office of elder, minister, and deacon. You've been saved unto this office. And to help you, th- help you see that, think, think upon an elder, minister, or deacon with his special office in the church. He also has the office of a believer, of a Christian been saved unto it. And anyone in a special office in the church would rather lose his special office of elder, minister, or deacon than the office of believer or Christian. In fact, he can lose his office of elder, minister, or deacon. But as a child of God, you can never lose this office of a believer. It's more valuable. It's part of the gift of salvation. So children, young people, you too, women in the church who may never, who will never take on a special office in the church, you need to, you must cherish this office of every believer. And elders, elders, deacons, and I speak to myself as a minister, we may never demean or minimize this special or this important office of believer this is in the name christian remember the name christ which is part of the name christian the name christ is the title of christ we speak of christ not as mr mis- there's a title called mr or doctor but christ jesus is his title christ and that title christ points to his office of prophet, priest, and king. Now when we're given the name Christian, we're given that title too. You're not, first of all, Mr. or Mrs. or Miss or Doctor or Reverend or Elder or Deacon. You're first of all Christian. That's your title. And that points to your valuable office. All who have this title and office Christian have been ordained and qualified. Remember last time, last week, children, I told you, you must remember two words especially that go with the idea of Christ or anointed one. Ordained or chosen unto that office and qualified, equipped for that office. As a Christian, you have been ordained and qualified for that office. First Peter 2.9 refers to the ordination unto that office. Choosing unto that office. You are a chosen generation. That in contrast, notice in verse 8, the verse that comes before verse 9, to the reprobate, Peter speaks of those who stumble at the Word, who reject the cornerstone, being disobedient, whereunto, we read, they were appointed. Why do many reject the Word? Why do many reject Christ a cornerstone and live in disobedience impenitently? Because they were appointed unto it in the counsel of God with the decree of unconditional reprobation. That's why. But, Peter says, regarding you, His people, although you don't deserve it, though you deserve the same thing as to reprobate, but you are a chosen generation unconditionally chosen unconditionally chosen not only go to not only to go to heaven, not only to be forgiven of all your sins, but beautifully unconditionally chosen in Jesus Christ to occupy this office, chosen to occupy this office as Peter says that is a priesthood that is not just a priesthood but a Royal priesthood. So a kingly priesthood. And not just a kingly priesthood, but a kingly priesthood ordained that you should show forth the praises. That's the prophetic work. To show forth the praises as a prophet. A royal priesthood and a prophetic office. God has chosen us unto this office but secondly, remember the second word, He has qualified us or equipped us for that office by His Spirit. And the Catechism emphasizes that. Why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus I am a partaker of His anointing. As a Christian with an office, He doesn't just put me in that position and say to me, Now go, do the work of prophet, priest, and king. No. But He causes there to flow from Himself down to us, His members, His body parts, all the power, the will, the strength to do the work of that office. That's the beautiful work of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. We brought up that picture of the anointing, and I bring that back to you as we sang of it in Psalm 133, of Aaron being anointed and children, when you think about, about the anointing exercise, oil, not just a little bit of oil, but much oil was poured beginning with the head, on the head of Aaron the priest or on David when he was anointed. And when much oil was poured upon the head of a man, that oil did not stay on his head, but Psalm 133 explicitly says that that oil ran down his beard, and then repeats it, even Aaron's beard, and it dripped down all the way to his skirts, down to the bottom, to his ankles, all the way down his body. It covered all his parts. That's the picture. I'll go back to the Heidelberg Catechism illustration of being members of Christ. Christ is the head upon whom the anointing has come, and we are his members body parts. And because He has been anointed, the head has been anointed, His anointing flows downward upon all His parts, all of us, His people. The body of Christ and that oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ Head, given to us to equip us, to qualify us in this work of prophet, priest, and king. So when you think upon the work of prophet, yes, you may think of the work of the preacher, the minister in preaching the Gospel, but you may not only think upon the work of preacher, you must also think upon your work as a prophet. When you think upon the work of king, yes, you may think of the work of elders as they rule in the congregation, but you must also think upon the work of each member as king's. When you think upon the work of priests, yes, you may think upon the work of deacons in showing the mercies of Jesus Christ, but you must also think upon your work as priests. So, what is that work? As scripture reveals in 1 Peter 2 9, especially, prophet, priest, and king, and the catechism lays out here in Lord's Day 12. Well, before we get to the particulars, I say it's work. It's work that Christ Jesus works in us both to will and to do. This work of prophet, priest, and king that we are called to and equipped to do is good work. And it is good work not to earn our salvation, but it's the fruit, a blessing of salvation which Christ has earned and works into us. And to have a second point that is dedicated to the work That we must be engaged in is not to be man-centered, as may be slanderously charged, but it is Christ-centered, because it is Christ working in man. Related to that, related to that, there is a phrase that is sometimes spoken and preached, and I have said it before, that Christianity is not about what man must do, but what God has done, and that is a proper phrase. Christianity is first and foremost, must always have at its heart this gospel of what God and Jesus Christ has done for us. Never give that up. Never minimize that. But do not either make that statement to mean that Christianity is not at all about man's work. That's a problem. Christianity is first and foremost about what Christ has done for us, but it includes what this Lord's Day reveals, what 1 Peter 2.9 shows us, His work in us to occupy an office and to do the work of that office. Not to earn it, not to earn salvation, but as part of the blessings of salvation from God. First, consider this priestly work that equips us and calls us unto even this morning. Priestly work, remember, we saw last Sunday, is a work of sacrifice and the work of approaching God in prayer. We saw the picture, remember, of the Old Testament, the priest going to the altar of burnt offering and shedding the blood of the lamb on that altar and then taking the coals from the altar. Having sacrificed, His work was not done, but He entered into the Holy of Holies, approached the presence of God, and there prayed before God, before His face. That's the work of the priest, and we said, that's what Christ has done. He's done that for us. He's fulfilled the priestly work of the Old Testament. He sacrificed Himself as an atonement for sin, and He intercedes for us. But in addition to that, Christ also now works in us so that we become priests and engage in a priestly work. And that first work that we consider this morning is the work of thankful sacrifice or thank offering. The Catechism says clearly, I present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him. Quoting from Romans 12, verse 1. Now Christ is the atoning sacrifice That work is finished. We make that clear. The earning of all of our salvation is done. Our sin is covered. That's the atoning sacrifice. But in the Old Testament, you remember, the priests also offered what is called thank offerings. Thank offerings, which often took the form of grain, raw grain, or grain that had been pounded and baked, And those offerings were brought before the altar and waved before God as sacrifices, thank offerings. Christ has made us those kind of priests that we may be as living sacrifices before Him, that we may give of ourselves as sacrifices in the service of Jehovah God, wholly offering our bodies and souls unto Him and to His service, fleeing fornication Because this body does not belong to ourselves, but it's bought with a price and it belongs to God. Not dedicated to self-service, but self-sacrifice. That's the work of the priest. And because it's sacrifice, often it's painful. No, not every work of the priest is painful. But often, offering yourselves as a living sacrifice of thanks is. It causes inconvenience as you sacrifice of yourself to others. As you spend and you are spent for the work in the church. As you endure criticism when you do what is right in the midst of others who conform to this world. As you dress modestly when others follow the trends. As you take up your cross of self-denial and follow Him, your Savior, in thanks. It's the work of the priest. As priests, we show mercy and that often comes with self-sacrifice. Mercy is a virtue of the priest that the priest must show especially. Christ showed mercy. That's why He sacrificed Himself. Mercy is to love those who deserve the opposite. Priests seek out the members of the church who are hurting or sinful members even members even who have sinned against us, mercy seeks them out and seeks reconciliation and visits the fatherless and the widow, as James puts it, the lonely and the sick and does not leave it just to the office, the special office of deacon that shows the mercies of Christ, though they do also. But every office or every believer in the office of Christian seeks to show the mercies of Christ Dedicating themselves as living sacrifices unto Him and to the other members of the body. Sacrifices of thanks. But don't forget the second priestly work. Sacrifice, but also approaching God in prayer. Christ is the high priest who entered, remember, into the Holy of Holies with His blood, and He intercedes for us with perfect prayers I cover our imperfect prayers. The point here today is that He empowers us into a priestly work of prayer also. Of fellowshipping with our God in His very presence. When He died, remember that picture, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom to signify that we have access into His presence. We don't need to go through a priest in this church. You don't need to come through a minister, an elder, or a deacon, though we may help you in praying and in interceding before God. You can come before your Father in heaven in your private and secret place, and you pray to Him through the Mediator, Jesus Christ. You have that privilege. You have that right. And you have that work in devotions and in formal worship. It's a priestly work of fellowshipping with God through prayer. That's the priestly side. Consider the work of prophet. I remind you, as I did last week, that the word prophet, the name prophet, indicates the picture of a pot bubbling over. So it's not only of a pot overflowing, but of a pot first being filled up, receiving God's Word, and then overflowing, bubbling forth with that Word. He makes us prophets. He is the prophet, revealing God to us. But then He fills us with the Word. Not with some Pentecostal influence, dream, or vision, but with His Word, with the inspired Scriptures. Beloved, so great is His salvation toward you that He has equipped you with His Holy Spirit to understand the Word. Or as 1 Peter 2.9 puts it, He has translated you out of darkness. A darkness that blinds you from understanding the Word, but has given you light. And He has shined that light into your heart so that now your eyes are opened and you can you can not only read the Word. Children, you too, you can understand that Word. You can. And though there are some difficult passages which you might need help in, you can open the Bible yourself. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can understand and apply yourself because you are prophets so beloved I call you do not leave the exegesis of the word of God to your minister alone do not say I can't understand this Bible unless I hear it preached yes the Lord uses the preaching to speak to you his word but take the word take the word yourself take the word yourself in such a way also and that as you hear the preaching, you are making sure that what is preached is based upon the Word of God. Not only the explanation of what it means, but whether this Word of God is being applied, applied in the way that the Spirit wants it to be applied and not according to man's way. You are able to try the spirits in this day and age with all kinds of false teachers that are skillful in taking a text and making it look like the explanation and application of Scripture, but it's not. You have the Spirit anointed in the office of believer to discern the truth, to understand it, to receive it, and then to confess it. Because the Spirit does not only fill you with the Word, but with a heat of conviction, just as a pot is heated up on a stove. In that heat of conviction, the Spirit works in you with His truth and causes there to bubble forth from your heart and out of your mouth and in your life to show forth the praises, as Peter puts it, of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You can profess your faith even at a young age. You can confess your faith before men to the glory of God. On the parking lot this morning and after church every day, every Sunday, your mouth your heart can and it should bubble forth not only about other things and not first of all about the game last night or the vacation or that cute child, but about what Christ has done for our souls That's the purpose of fellowship. Not only in the parking lot, but in Bible study, beloved. As prophets, as prophets, you receive the Word and you bubble forth to one another. I'm willing to lead Bible studies to work through the Bible societies of this church and to help God's people in the understanding of the Word, to ask the questions and to lead them through the text. A Bible study, beloved is not for the minister to preach to you first and foremost. It is not for me to be the answer man or the leader of that Bible study to be the answer man. But it's for you to take up your calling and your office and your work as a prophet to prepare to be filled with the Word that you study and then to speak to one another that which God has revealed to you, your prophetic soul. Beloved, as an application of this prophetic office and work, we need to improve. We need to improve in taking the doctrines precious to us and to our churches and using those doctrines not first to fight with each other, but to bring those doctrines as a witness to our neighbors, to bring those doctrines in mission work to others, to turn outward, outward, beloved, that's what prophets do. Carrying the burden of God upon their shoulders, they cannot keep it in, but they must share it. Share it with one another in your homes, parents. That's your prophetic office. And share it with those across the street in your neighborhood and share it far and wide and make that a priority as the work of a prophet who've been anointed unto that duty and that ability. And finally, the work of King. We're a royal priesthood. The catechism explains it this way, that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan. Fighting. That first. That's the work of a king like King David did. The warrior king. Which picture Jesus Christ, who is the king, the conqueror, who has conquered Satan, death, and sin for us. Now he works in us to fight the good fight. Of faith, to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. But the first enemy, notice, and I know I've preached this before, but I preach it again because it's so important. The first enemy, the kings in the church must fight according to that office. The catechism points us to our own sinful natures with a free and good conscience. That's not referring simply to what we already have. It's working to what we're fighting for. We fight for a free and good conscience. That is, we fight against a sin that would terrorize our conscience and that would bring us back into the bondage of an addictive sin. We fight that sinful nature first. That must be emphasized. Beloved, you know it should be obvious to you that if you do not fight as kings against your sinful nature first, the fighting, for, fighting for the faith, fighting to contend for true doctrine against false doctrine, all your fighting against others will fail, it will flop. It will be sinful fighting. So let me ask you, when you fight against false doctrine, are you also fighting first your hatred? How hard are you fighting to be patient? How hard are you fighting to have self-control, a fruit of the Spirit. How hard are you fighting to hold your tongue, which is, a, which is as a fire that can set a forest aflame? How hard are you fighting against rebellion? Because you have rebellious natures that would take the office of all believer and use it and twist it to rebel against your office bearers and to create disorder in the church as a result. That would not be the proper work of a king The king must first fight his own sinful nature and rule, reign in his body in self-control. As a king reigns, rule over his home as a father, rule over family and those under whom God has placed, under under which God has placed you, the people whom God has placed under your rule. And then, then, members, you have the responsibility as kings, as you fight your own sinful nature, as you rule over those whom God has placed under your care. Then, as you see, if you see a consistory making wrong decisions, or you hear a preacher who preaches that which is contrary to God's word, then you take your office of believer. As a king, in an orderly manner, you protest. And we may not label those who protest as troublemakers, but that is the wielding of their office when they bring unto the consistory or to broader assemblies their concern according to the Word of God because they see error in the church. That is part of your royal priesthood. That is your calling. It's your duty. But also, that is your blessing. It's your privilege. Remember, this is Christ's saving work in his people to make you members, to equip you with his anointing, so that you're enabled to do this work of prophet, priest, and king and to improve in this work too. It's a blessing that He gives to you as individuals. You notice, Peter talks about this blessing as it comes not only as in, upon individuals, but as a church. Ye, you all, you see, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, not the nation of Israel, but the church, a peculiar people. Together, together, That's what the anointing oil and the Holy Spirit does. It brings God's people together. Not members and body parts that float this way and that way and do their own thing, but are brought together in the body as they're brought into this body as the church here at Hope. And together they engage in the work of prophet, priest, and king with their own unique strengths and gifts. And together, the Spirit flows from Jesus Christ to us. Together we receive this blessing from Christ. And together we serve Him. and Together we acknowledge it's only a small beginning. And we need forgiveness because we have not been faithful in the use of the office of every believer as we ought to. We have too often behaved as nominal Christians rather than Christians with this office and duty. We depend on Christ, the office bearer, to cover us again. But one day, the catechism hints at this too, afterwards, one day, we will continue in this office that we have been placed in to do the work of prophet, priest, and king perfectly. One day, you see that office will not cease. And the work will not cease. But our hope is that when Christ comes, His anointing upon us will be so great that with souls and bodies renewed, we will serve Him as perfect prophets, priests, and kings for His glory in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the blessing from Christ, the Anointed One. Amen.